Thank you for tuning in to another edition of Dropping Dimes. For this episode, we have David Kozlowski with us, <laughs> host of Quit Trippin' Radio on ESPN 700, also uh, founder of the Quit Trippin' Foundation. Thanks for being here with us. Thanks for having me. I'm loving this intro music, man. This is this is my kind of intro music right here. What do you know about this? <laughs> oh, yeah. You're not I, old I, enough. I, I, I'm not old enough, and I'm, I'm not from Southern California, so I wouldn't know nothing about no Tupac. <laughs> the greatest rapper ever, Tupac or Biggie? That's, oh, well, I mean, I'm going to say Tupac without a doubt. I asked Kenneth Scott this question. He said Biggie, and I was like, all right, we're done. We're done. <laughs> <laughs> what about you, Sasha? Uh, Tupac. Tupac? I had a feeling you'd say big. I like paying rent Biggie. when the rent's due. <laughs> <laughs> Did you get the diamond necklace that I sent to you? <laughs> um, all right. So what have you been up to since your days at University of Utah? Oh man, that was a long time ago. They like I think we had leather helmets back then. <laughs> and no mouthpieces. You got those, you know, like those little brown uniforms. They weren't even red back then. Did you guys even have pads? <laughs> didn't have pads. No, didn't have pads. You're allowed to, you know. Do a lot of illegal moves and stuff like that. Nah, <laughs> it, it was in the '90s, so it was quite a while ago. Um, but uh, no, I've just been. Uh, I mean, kind of. You, you talked about like with the foundation. Since I left the University of Utah, I went back to Southern California, where I'm from, and started getting into working with troubled teens and at-risk teens and all different types of situations, like psych hospitals and like the ghettoest group homes and the worst vatios and like the worst neighborhoods. And a lot of people don't think San Diego has bad neighborhoods. San Diego's got bad neighborhoods. It's not all palm trees. So I, I did that for many years and, you know, worked on that for a long time and a lot of stuff in between, both good and bad. And then somehow I came to Utah. I were you, swore, were I you swore. an angry kid? An angry kid? Because, uh, like, what what attracts you to working with those types of people? Oh, shoot, man. How much, how much time it's you a, got? It's <laughs> a thankless calling. You know, I, I grew up in a lot of trouble. And when I was a little kid and always had to deal with these types of situations that I found myself in, and what I found was that the men and women who worked with angry and troubled young boys, they usually were very nice people. And because they came from a really hard background and were able to overcome uh, their life, and I guess they had a calling to give that. Is that what you dealt with? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, I mean, I we were talking before we got on, on the shows that, um, so I was actually adopted. Uh, my biological grandmother, she uh, had a baby out of wedlock and... Um, she, you know, she just realized it was best for her to raise me because, you know, my biological mom was really young at the time. And so my biological grandmother, you know, she raised me with her new husband. And so I was raised as the youngest of this big family. But I, I think it's pretty well known. You know, I came from a rough family. You know, I, I was, my biological grandmother's from the North Shore of Hawaii. And it's, you know, it's 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 a tough place to be from. And uh, they believe on the laying on of hands. Let's put it that way. <laughs> I can't remember ever getting grounded once. I, I wish I would have been grounded a couple of times. But, yeah, so rough in that sense and, you know, not knowing who you are. I think anyone out there that was adopted or kind of was raised in a situation where you're, like, looking around, like, no one really looks like you. Like, I kind of look like everybody, but I didn't really look like everybody. So, yeah, there's definitely a lot of anger because, you know, when you have an aggressive, you know, there's some violence around, you know, some tough love and some tough upbringing. And you get kind of hardened by that. But, I think really I, I wanted to be more social and I wanted to be more like, so I fought that all the time. Like I was always trying to be the social guy, but you know, you, you know, if you don't know who you are, eventually something's going to push you or something's going to happen. Next thing you know, you're going to break down either in tears or break out swinging, you know, was or it like both. A, <laughs> was it like an everyday thought that was just always in the back of your head? Like 
I don't, I feel like I don't fit in. I wonder who I am. Why did my, you know, mom give me up for adoption? Yeah, or no, my parents. That's a great question. I was just talking about so, so because so I'm a licensed professional counselor. So my license, licensed marriage and family therapist. So I specialize with teens, and randomly that question will come up because some of the kids have similar backgrounds that I did. I had, and I remember this one kid just last week. I think asked me, he's like, "Yeah, like so, what was it like for you?" And I, you got to be real, right? Like, there's no way I'm going to expect someone to be real with me if I'm not real with them. And for some reason, I just said, I remember this one time I was looking in the mirror. And my belly button, odd, odd story, my belly button doesn't look like anyone else's belly button in my family. It's one of those noticeable traits that was different. Like, I have a really deep belly button. Small as simple that is, but to a, like a 9, 10-year-old kid, I'm looking, and I'm like, why do I look different? And then I ask my mom, and she's like, oh, you know, this and that. And then I'd be reminded that I was adopted. And so, like, there would be these weird things that trigger you. Next thing you know, you're like, oh, I am different. And then you start looking around, and you start realizing, man— Oh, I'm different. And then you start comparing all the things that you're not good at, right? So that's a normal thing. You start to like the way our brains work is they don't go, oh, what are all the things I should be grateful for? That's not the natural thing. The natural thing is what are all the things that could isolate me from the group and get me kicked out, right, of the social group of the family? So that's what I went through is like I would always pick apart all the things that look different about me. And, yeah, I'd hold on to that. And I always had this weird feeling that something was going to happen and I wasn't being raised by my family. I used to have nightmares and dreams about it. And I told this one kid this, and he was like, whoa, that's so crazy. Like, he had the same experience. Like, he just felt like his arms were different because his one brother has really buff, ripped arms, and he has, like, kind of thicker arms. So it's just interesting how we point out those little differences to make us feel like we're not going to be liked or not going to be accepted. And you develop attachment and abandonment disorders, too. My father died when I was, like, two or three. And I remember being nine or ten years old, and I was laying in bed, and my mom was reading. And I remember saying, where's my dad? Like, it was the first time I ever talked about it, had a consciousness, like, as you were saying, something's not right here with this story. And I remember after that conversation, I became the angriest kid in the world. And it took me about seven grades of getting kicked out to finally get out of my system. And hats off to you. There's nothing you can do to help a little boy without his father. Like, it's it's a struggle. They're going to get in trouble. And it's the city and our court systems don't really understand that. And... So you see so many kids that end up in prison when really they just need to go to work and get a hug from somebody. It doesn't matter who. Well, you know, you, you made a very good point because so, you know, what I do for a living, you know, I I think I have it on my um, my Instagram or one of my social media. I just say I'm, I'm just a dude that helps people. Mm. Like I don't really consider myself like a therapist or a counselor. I mean, I know that's what I do. That's how I pay the bills. Right. And then with the radio show and all that stuff like that, people, you know, I'm. I'm a professional speaking on subjects that I do for a living, right? I've done a lot of work with suicide prevention. So I can speak on these things from a professional point of view. But like what you're saying right there, it's like at the end of the day, it's like sometimes these kids just need a hug. Sometimes they just need a mentor or a role model. And that's why like, you know, um, whether it be sports or music, I mean, think of how many kids right now are following their favorite athlete or their favorite musician, just praying they get a response or like, we're all looking for like to be accepted or, and you know, to a young man in your story, unfortunately it's all too familiar. Mm. Dad's gone out of the scenario, right? You know, something happens in the family system gets busted up. And next thing you know, you're like, man, how come I wasn't good enough for my friends? Their dads are here. Like, well, why is my dad not here? You know, you start asking those questions, you know, it's interesting that you guys say like, uh, sometimes someone just needs a hug. I was watching this, uh, documentary actually two nights ago 
on Cook County Jail in Chicago. Yeah. Um, have you seen it? And, no, I, I've heard about it. I haven't watched that one yet, though. And yeah. the way that they run their system, like the warden, is completely different. He's there to help these people that are incarcerated, that are locked up. He, he even said, why are we being so harsh on them? Sometimes, you know, they do just need a hug, or this person got pointed in the wrong direction. This person didn't have a father, a mother growing up. They're in here, they just, they're in here because they stole something from the convenience store and they don't have bail money to get out. So that's why they're sitting in here. It's not that they're bad people, you know? Um, And he's coming under fire for running his jail that way. Well, because he's, he sounds like he's running for rehabilitation. That's what he said. He said he's trying to help people. (laughs) Yeah, that's what he said. He said, it doesn't even feel like a jail. It feels like, you know, we're really here to help. And he's got people in there writing down notes, meeting with the people that are in the jail Taking down notes, hey, what did you do? What can we do to help you out? Do you have money for this? Do you have that? Tell me about your background, all this kind of stuff. And, and they care. Yeah. And the, the argument is, why do you care? They're bad. They're in there for a reason. Well, it's think how much easier it is just to dismiss someone, to judge them, look them up and down and dismiss them, because it takes time to get to know someone. It takes time to connect with someone. But you guys know in the media industry or in any profession, sports, whatever it is, connection's king. That's the real currency. Right, if you can connect with other human beings, you can motivate people, influence people to do things that they didn't even know they could do, right? Like, you know, we talk about sports, right? You know, we talk about sports for the for the show star in the NBA. The best coaches right now, in my opinion, are the coaches that can that can manage relationships. They're not always the best X's and O's guys, no, right? They're father figures. Exactly. They're the guys that can deal with multi-million dollar personality types and be like, "Hey man, come here. Let me give you a hug." I I imagine like some coach like give the guy hugs, like, "Hey, come here. I love you." You're being an idiot, dude. <laughs> like, knocking, what's wrong with you, man? Like, it's like I'm sorry, man. Like, like, I mean, how many of those young, how many of those guys are millionaires, ro- rolling in nice cars and big houses, and now they're fathers that maybe they didn't have a father, right? Yeah. So I, I like I, I like what you said right there because man, it's like connection is king. It always has been, and and hopefully we we start to figure that out because that guy at that jailhouse, I'm, you know, I I got to check that out because it's just so amazing where people you bring out the best in people when they feel. And actually believe that you give a damn about them. And even if they still make mistakes, it's usually not personal. They're like, my bad. Most most young people that I haven't seen for a while, they, they'll hit me up. They'll they'll see me out in public, and they, they can't even look me in the eyes. I'm like, what's wrong? Like, I'm embarrassed because, you know, I haven't been up to no good and this and that. I'm like, just give me a hug, man. Like, what? Like, I, I, don't, I don't care about you because you're doing drugs. You're not doing drugs. I care about you because you're a human being that I love and care about. Now, if you're doing drugs and that's not working for you, that's your own damn fault. Like, you know, like that, that's, you know what you got to do. Yeah. If you're not ready to do it, doesn't mean I'm like, I'm going to only withhold my love till you're sober. What is that? You know? And so I'm glad that that guy's actually taking that. He's modeling that for people. Wish more people would do that. Yeah, it, it is interesting, but it just seems like, hey, you know, you're not used to seeing that. So some people are just like, no, that's not the way you're supposed to run things. Is it funny how that's the it? outside the box? Yeah. Like giving a damn and like going outside of your comfort zone and being real and vulnerable people are like, oh, like. That's the one that people, ooh, I don't know if I can do that one. That should be the not the exception to the rule. It should be the rule. Yeah. But we're taught to be fake, and we're taught to be phony in this society. <laughs> well, that, that's our training. Yeah. Except on social media. Yeah. Right? Instagram filters. <laughs> we're not taught that. That's we, so <laughs> it was funny that we actually joke about it because it goes without saying. You're right. Like, it's it's what's shown to us. I mean, I mean, like, what's what's the, the slogan, you know, sex sells, right? Yeah. Right? I mean human beings are natural. It's natural to be attracted to someone who is, you know, physically attractive. Right. 
But then dudes are sitting there going, man, I could make us a lot of money if we put them next to our ass. You know, it's like, <laughs> that's been around forever, you know, and unfortunately, that's not real, right? So you, uh, when you played football at the University of Utah, what was always going through your mind? Did you always know that you were going to do this after football? Were thoughts, I'm going to the NFL? What was in your head? So when I first got to University of Utah, all I was focused on is trying to be as good as my older brother. My older brother was currently playing for the Chicago Bears. And um, a lot of athletes I've talked to seem to be able to relate to this. Um, I got there, and I just wanted to prove myself. I was just like, oh, i got to prove myself. i got to prove myself. And then after I had a spinal tap surgery, I had a couple more concussions, um, bang, bang, shoulder surgery. Next thing you know, I, you know, I started you know, drinking a lot, started partying a lot. And then I just started to take a step back. And to be totally honest, like, I didn't even really, I didn't even love football. Like, it was just that thing that I felt that if you get attention for something as a young man, I'm like, that's the only thing I know for a fact people give me attention on. Like, you take that away from me, I didn't even want to think about that. But then after all my injuries and stuff started happening, I kept on trying to prove something. But the day they told me I couldn't play football anymore because I had um, multiple concussion syndrome, and I was—I said before the air, but I was—I was in a coma for a short period of time. I had a speech impediment. It was so bad that the top three neurologists in the state they wouldn't clear me to play. It was the biggest relief of my life. I walked out of that that meeting with the doctors. I was like, because oh. like they took it from me, but yeah. I really wanted to let it go. I just didn't have that the strength to, didn't have the guts let it go to quit. Hell no, yeah. I was too scared of facing real life. So yeah, my whole entire Utah experience, I had no idea. But the craziest thing happened was my last semester of college. I'm like trying to get good grades. I'm studying. I'm taking advantage of things. I I got like over. I got like a three point two GPA. And I'm like, wow. Like if I actually study, I could actually like <laughs> it works. if I went to class, it helps. Like these little details, right? If I take notes, yeah. I can pass the test. And the, and the worst part about it is I actually had brain damage, so it was harder for me to retain the information. My cognitive processing was distorted to the point where. I could take information, I get stuck. So the University of Utah said, you can have as much time as you want to take a final, gave me a quiet room. I could sit there all day because I needed it. it. Like the information was legitimately stuck. But I had a psychology class. And oddly enough, it was a relational psychology class. I don't know how, I don't even remember how I got the class. It was like, hey, you got to take a class. I'm like, I'll take this one, right? I didn't really have too many psychology credits. And I'm graduating like in consumer economics. And I take this class and the whole entire class was talking about like birth order and then how our families influence our relationships and like flashbacks my whole life. Boom, 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 boom. It was like a big Vietnam flashback of like good <laughs> things, bad things. And I left there and I was like, wait a second. And then at the same time, I was going through counseling for my head traumas. Well, the counselor was like the head of the psychology department at the U. I remember I'd meet with them. And after our meetings, I'd be like, wait a second. So you just sit there and listen to people for an hour. You ask them questions to make them think about stuff they would never normally think about, and then they leave feeling totally relieved, making change in their life, because I'd never been, like, more conscious of my own existence. And he was like, yeah, I'm like, that's a dope job. And then it was then, the last semester, I'm like, that's what I want to do for a living. And then an act of all these, like, planets, Pluto and Mars, everything had to come to alignment, because, you know, to go to graduate school and have brain trauma and... For me, not to have good study habits, all these things worked out. A former University of Utah football player, he actually was uh, working at a graduate school in San Diego. He was the one that encouraged me, Joe Welch. He said, dude, he was, he was a wide receiver from San Diego. He was one of the guys who was academically minded. He goes, you can do this. And he told, he made me believe I can do it, and I did it. And it was it was interesting how I had to go through all those crazy head traumas to get me to counseling. And I'm going to counseling for head traumas. Come to find out after my third session, I'm crying. I'm like, 
so this has nothing to do with my brain, huh? He's like, nope. <laughs> it's you, not your I'm brain. Like, I'm like, this was like the biggest, like, pulled the wool. Like, like oh, we're just going to have you go to to counseling to help you with your brain trauma. Well, the reality was is I had a suicide attempt shortly before that. Um, I was struggling with adi- addictions. You know, I didn't tell nobody I was adopted. My greatest shame was that people would find out that if people found out that my brother in the NFL wasn't really my brother, they'd be like, Oh, so that's why he's not as good. And the fact of the matter is, I just wasn't as good. Like, I can say it totally honest. My brother played for the Miami Dolphins and for the Chicago Bears. They wanted it more, and they were better than I was. I was good enough to go to college, but I wasn't good enough to have a long career in the NFL. But as a young man, I'm like, I was trying to live the lie. No, I'm good enough. I'm good enough. When secretly, I hated it. And two, I knew I wasn't good enough. But think about how many young men are like they're doing something because they feel like they have to prove it. But deep down inside, they just want someone to take it away from them. <laughs> like they're like, please stop the bleeding. I can't do this no more. But that's I think you, that's the key right there. There's so many people that are doing things that don't want to do things just to be accepted. And oh, it, it's yeah. not just in sports. It's in anything in life. Relationships. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's another one. Yeah. But I mean, what is it going to take to make people realize to wake up, you know, maybe they don't have that experience like you had for somebody to help wake them up or the injuries to say, you know, you really can't play anymore. This is it. What can we do to help people and make them realize you don't have to do that? Well, this is the thing that I'm really pumped about social media and the digital world that we live in now. So you've probably heard that, that saying like, you know, um, you know, you got to learn from mistakes, right? Well, no one says it has to be all your mistakes, Right. You dodge a lot of bullets if you're learning from other people's mistakes. You know what I'm saying? And so social media and digital communication, if we use it in the most progressive way, we can access information from people that have walked paths that we could actually take that information, put it into our own tool bag and figure out how to do it for ourselves. Now, granted, we're still going to lose some enamel along the way. We're still going to make mistakes, but they don't have to be those life, those type of mistakes where it makes you want to give up. Right, like I saw this uh, this TED talk a while ago about this guy breaking down how YouTube has changed human being innovation, and it was so true. He talked about on the World Wide Web. Um, he, I think he said like in 2030, it's going to be it's like predicted like almost 80 percent video, like we're going total video, right? And what he said is on YouTube, one person they figure out how to fix something or do something, they post it. Another person like, oh wow. And then they figure it out and they do it better. It's like, do, 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 do. he used like dance moves. There's break dancers in Europe doing a move. Dudes in LA are like, what? We can do that better. And they do it. And blah, blah. Next thing you know, it's like, and he also used like doctors in like, you know, it was like a Papua New Guinea or somewhere in Africa. They needed to do this life-saving surgery. Well, in the old days, a doctor in England that came up with the surgery would have to write the book on it, put it all together. It could take five years to get them that information. But now they do the surgery almost in lifetime on, on YouTube. Boom, boom, boom. Upload it. This guy who's a, who's a brain surgeon himself is watching the other. Oh, okay. Let me clip this instead. In almost real time, you could save someone's life. And so to answer your question, like the way I feel as human beings that we could f- sort ourselves out. And this is a general thing, so we can narrow it down in a little bit, but Generally, the way we can sort ourselves out with less damage, right, getting to the end game, figure out who we are a lot sooner, is by using other people's experiences. But we can't use those experiences without some sort of face-to-face interaction. But what if they're fake? Well, see, that's the thing. If we're using people's experiences that are fake, then that's obviously going to help us be more fake, right? People only find what they're looking for. I can't tell someone what their intent is. In the court of law, the biggest, the hardest thing to prove is someone's intent. So we're talking about like if someone's looking 
to be a better person for self-progression, they're going to find those YouTube videos. They're going to find that podcast, right? They're going to find that because that's what they're looking for. But haven't people also just been looking for superficial things throughout the history of human beings, right? Haven't, aren't there some people like, how do I just get more likes? I don't care if I'm a good person. There like, are people killing themselves because they don't have enough likes. And that's what makes me so upset. Likes on freaking Instagram and stuff because you don't have 100 likes and someone's taking their life. It's sad. Well, and, and here's I, – I can't speak on all those specifically because having worked with people who are suicidal and stuff like that, the hardest thing about getting to that point is there's thousands of different variables. Like suicide is not like cancer and other things. The reason why we're not getting our hands around this particular thing because you can't put it under an x-ray, right? One person, oh, they're a drug addict. Another person, oh, they're depressed. Another person, oh, this happened. There's so many variables that could cause someone to not want to live no more. But in those particular situations, from my experience – too much is hanging on that one last bit of acceptance because there are so many other fails along the way. They felt like they weren't good enough as a daughter. They felt like they weren't good enough as a son, as a friend, or they didn't get that job that they wanted, right? What I was talking about as far as just from a large general standpoint, as far as people using other people to help us get to better places, well, we could also use other people to help us to get to more self-centered places too. But if you're looking to get to those better places, for example, I've counseled a lot of young people with self-harm. Self-harm is one of the things that, and suicide that I wish I didn't know so much about. But the reason why I know so much about it is because so many people are struggling with it, right? So when you look at it in that sense, who are the people in our life that are modeling for us how to be a person, right? Who are the teenagers in our life that are a couple years older than us that are mentoring for us and modeling for us how to get through depression, there's a lot of young girls out there that are reaching out to other girls that are self-harming and they're telling them, hey, listen, I went through that too. Follow my path so you don't have to go that exact direction. And it helps them. So it's it's a very sad and hard thing. But at the same time, I have to believe, and I don't think I'm believing this, totally be optimistic. In my organization and in my experience with all these young people, I see too many connections save people's lives, literally and figuratively. Where like saves them from bad decisions, it saves them from another bad decision that gets them out of a situation that they couldn't have handled, right? And I also see situations where a kid's like, man, I can't call the suicide hotline because I don't know if they're going to understand me. Or I can't call this person because where do I start from? Because I'm in such a deep place. But there is that one person who's already told me that they've went through it. Your probability of reaching out to someone who you know that can relate is a lot higher you're more likely to reach out to that person because that person's been vulnerable. It's been, like the root of the word relationships relate, right? And so like podcasts, for example, the reason why I'm so stoked to come on this podcast with you guys because someone's going to listen to this and someone's going to relate to that. And you need all those different things throughout the week. Like throughout the week, you don't need one meal throughout the week, right? If you had one person you connected with throughout the week, you're going to starve. If you have multiple people throughout the week that you connect with, white, black, Chinese, Mormon, atheist, you know, Jewish, like relationships are like 31 flavors. The different types of people you have to relate, the more experiences you're going to have. It like you can catch bigger fish and, you know, you can fit, catch more fish in a bigger pond, right? Love the whole podcast thing because so many people can relate to this type of conversation. It's not scripted, right? We didn't sit here and go, okay, well, don't forget to smile when you say this, right? No one's recording it, right? There's no need to smile, right? <laughs> not the news no. yeah so I'll, I'll, stop, I'll stop my rant but hopefully you feel what i'm saying though no i totally get it one of the biggest things i struggled with all in my 20s was allowing myself to be successful and oh, yeah. allowing myself to not be embarrassed with my success 
how do you mentor young people to allow themselves to be successful? Because it's difficult. Oh, it's very difficult. So the first thing we got to acknowledge, like the elephant in the room, right? Young people right now. Now, for anyone listening to this, like, this is what I do. I eat, sleep, and breathe this every day. So I'm not just, like, popping off because I read a book about this. Like, I'm in the trenches. I talk to about 100 young people a week, like, face-to-face. They're, like, pouring out everything. And there's a difference in interaction when you're talking to a young person every day, every week for a couple years versus if you're just, like, giving someone some advice, right? And so right now what I'm seeing is that the biggest challenge that this generation, these young people have, to do exactly what you're saying, to, to, to believe they can be successful, they have too many options. Yeah. They have too many choices. Research, a lot of research has shown if you give someone 15 choices and you give someone two choices, guess who you think makes a choice faster? Person with two choices. Person with two choices. When you only got a couple choices, either do drugs and gangbang or play sports and get out of the ghetto, it becomes really simple what you do. There's not really a lot of options there. But nowadays I'm talking to kids who are like, I could start my own internet business. I could start, I could make my own app. I could have my own fitness company. I could do this. I could do that. I could do. Brrr. And then they're sitting in front of a mirror looking at a person they don't even know. Yeah. They have no idea. Like, and then the fear of not being successful is just amped up because if you, if everyone's been telling you your whole entire life, by the way, I'll, I'll get even deeper on this. The young kids right now, they're raised by parents who probably really weren't watched after too well by their parents, right? I'm like eight years old. Like my daughter, seven years old. I'm like, I can't believe, I'm like, I used to go to the store, come back, like, what's up? Hang out with my homies. We used to ride our big wheels to the grocery store and back. That was like two miles away on a big wheel. Can you ride a bike, right? And so you're looking at now, now you have this generation, right, of parents going, whoa, I was let, my parents let me drive in the back of a pickup truck doing 75 miles an hour down the I-15. What the hell is wrong with them? If I see a parent doing that right now, I'm calling 911. People die. Remember those station wagons where you can sit with your kids facing the backseat bumper? Yeah. You know how many kids die <laughs> before they go? That's probably a bad idea to set a kid on the most dangerous part of a car with no seatbelt. Right? And it was they, fun. No, no, but think about it. This was 30 years ago. So now we're sitting here going, that was insane. We know more now. Then people knew hundreds of years ago, it like the knowledge shift, it pivoted in the past 30 years. Boom. Now we have all this. Now it's like, you know, so much. It's like, how do you like not give your kid everything? Okay. So now I talk to parents. They're like, my kid has the best Xbox, this, that I give them everything they need. And there's no disrespect. By the way, if I had a dollar for every time a parent said, if I talk to my parents, the way my kid talks to me, I would beep, 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 beep. And these are like the good religious people dropping F-bombs because that's the point. They're trying, to like, they're, they're trying to show how disrespected they are by their teenagers. And I look at them and they look at me and I'm like, well, we can all agree you created the monster. And they're like, yep, I did. Most people will honestly admit like by giving them everything, I gave them too much. So to answer your question, what I'm finding with young people right now, they're so scared of being successful. Maybe not the same way you were, but they're so scared of being successful because if they're not successful, everybody's going to see. Back in the day, if you got your butt whooped at school, the 30 people that showed up to the flagpole to watch it saw. The horrible thing about it is- Now it's on it is, Worldstar. Now it's on Worldstar. That could get more views than an actual- Well, it will get more views than a young kid committing suit. almost said the thing oh. I'd say, passing away from suicide- at your local high school. That's not going to make the news. 
That's not going to make the media because people don't know how to feel about that. I'm not dissing the news or anything. It's just people don't like, how do you talk about something you don't even understand versus, okay, this kid, yeah, he got beat up this and that, or, you know, little Johnny, you know, he, you know, he, he stole a car. Like those things are easy to talk about because we understand. So the success rate is also equated to the potential failure. that's so visible. You could be everybody. When you're ashamed and insecure about something, you want to hide in the shadows. But nowadays, if you make a mistake or if you tell how many how many teenage boys out there you think they're senior year of high school like yeah I'm going to go to college I'm going to do this and I'm going to do or they're junior they're telling everybody all these amazing things they're going to do come to the senior year and they're talking to me having anxiety attacks going I don't I've never even done my own laundry I don't know what I, if I can do any of those things I told everybody I was going to do like you claim to be a superstar and now you got no proof you can pull it off hence fear of like taking a risk to be successful fear of putting yourself out there cuz being vulnerable is the only way you're going to be successful you can't make yourself you can't get success without putting yourself out there and being really exposed to criticism and really exposed to potential faults and trusting your bosses or mentors to train you. Like that's that was a really breaking moment for me in my adult life was being fully comfortable and telling my boss, "I don't know how to do this, but I want to learn. Can you teach me?" Oh yeah, you know. And I wish I would have had that skill set at 17 and I don't, I don't think that my brain was designed to ask for help. Well, I think there's a big, going off what you said, I think there's a big movement and a big shift because, um, so for our big thing, for example, with our, our nonprofit organization is we consider ourselves, we focus on improving social health for today's youth. We believe that not by, not by anyone's fault, just by nature of the, the world we live in, live in the digital world, we're becoming more and more socially unhealthy because if you think about it, check any teenager's um, phone records. You think they've made more phone calls, more video chats, or more texting and more messaging? Texting and messaging. It's not even close. Yeah. So put this into perspective for a second. 80%, and most people have heard the statistics, 80% of communication is nonverbal. You ever heard that before? Yeah. So when you're talking to someone, they're like, customer service, like, sorry, sir, I can't give you back your money, but can I help you with anything else? You're welcome. And you're like, <laughs> like you get that cheesy smile that like you know this chick hates you and you hate her and you're like I don't know why I'm saying a chick it could be a guy right I'm just, I'm just saying like you're just sitting there like seething like you know the body language doesn't match up with the nice polite words or in a relationship it's like well I love you I'm sorry right they're like you know there's kind of submission sorry submission I love you right so as human beings we've practiced for hundreds of years. Is what this person's saying matching up with their body language? Because if it is, I can trust them, and our, our relationship is most likely going to be a little bit more preserved and safer, right? And by the way, we as human beings need communities. We need social groups to survive. The only reason why our ancestors didn't kill, get killed by wild beasts is because we all figured out if we grouped together, we could kill the wild beast, right? We are village people. Like, we are – wow, that sounded bad mm. – we are people from villages and tribal, right? Like, we are village people, right? You might be yeah, a village person. Hey, man, that's, they had a good hit. They had a good hit. But the social nature of our, we have to depend upon survival through social connections. And by the way, that's been, I, I talk about this to Ignazium, so anyone's heard me talk about it before. Matthew Lieberman from UCLA, he does all his amazing research on the brain, and the way he puts it is beautiful. He said, through the evolution of human beings, the human beings to survive, we had, like, the brain had to made a bet, right? It's like the bet was, okay, do we bet on if we're, we're, are we going to be more likely to survive if we're bigger, stronger, faster, smarter? 
And you know what the brain decided? To evolve to become more social. By being more social is what sustained our survival. You can't build a, scra- a skyscraper by yourself. Right? You can't even do a podcast by yourself. Right? And so our social is our key right now. But I, I see this, this wave of like mentors, right? Like you said, as a young man, getting back to what you said, it's like so many people are pivoting. Socially, we are not constrained by the normal education structure. We're not strained by the normal government structure. Socially, we can pivot all over the place, sometimes too many pivots, right? But socially, I'm seeing a lot of people getting into mentoring. I think that's amazing. I'm seeing a lot of people listening to podcasts. I think that's amazing because it's a freedom of speech type of thing, right? And so I think socially, we can make the changes to give suicide, depression, those types of things, the type of lift and help that it needs because if we wait for policy, procedure, and if we wait for, um, and I'm just using this example, I'm not dissing anything. If we wait for the research to come back to develop a way to help this, it, it, it could be too late. Like, we can't wait that long. I, I always use this example. Did Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, and, and, and um, Snapchat, right? Did they sit around and say, hey, before we start our multi-billion dollar companies, we're going to do 10 years of psychological research to make sure it doesn't increase narcissism? It doesn't uh, encourage <laughs> bullying. Make sure that sexual predators can't use this for uh, you know to you know to take advantage of people. Did they do that and wait for ten million for ten years before they released their social media mega platforms? Not in this country. Not not and not in the slightest. So if they didn't wait to influence us and give us in, this injection of social fusion, right? The social power that we have, right? We can't wait. For all the data to come back to create solutions for it. That's why I'm more hopeful that we can use these powers for good. Like we can use social platforms to pivot and shift much faster than our education system, much faster than the government, much faster than anything that's that's been moving for so long that can't turn that quickly. So when you're when you're trying to help a young mind develop, what do you tell them about watching violence on TV or listening to rap or listening to to this whole outside world that's when you look at it is really negative yeah well so first of all i call it the five-year rule right so when i turn 18 and i don't know exactly how you guys are but for the older generations when you turn 18 there's kind of a standard of things you were exposed to i remember when i first turned 18 i went to some new parties but oh i haven't seen that before Mm. you know like what like you know you're hearing things because you know there wasn't the internet like it's not at least the way it is right now Nowadays, when I'm counseling kids, they're being exposed to things that 18-year-olds used to be exposed to at 13 years old. And that is not like we're doing a horrible job as parents. That's just the world, okay? So what I've been helping parents see is that we can't wait for them to be 18 to have 18-year-old conversations, right? We can't work with them as partners. Okay, we're going to work together as partners the day before you turn 18 to help you be an adult. It has to be staggered. It has to be slowly built in with the knowledge that they're getting from the outside world and the knowledge they're getting from the home. The big clash that we're having that we've never seen in society before, and this is all psychological facts, so I'm not like stating opinion right now. Teenagers, it's their job to help remodel the family. Teenagers have to test systems because parents can't raise, can't run a family the same way they ran it when, when they were single, when they have one kid. And they can't run the same way when they have two kids or three kids. Then they can't run the same way when they have teenagers in the household. So teenagers bring information from the outside world. They introduce it to the family. And then the family, it's the family's job to actually help kind of that, that uh, bridging the gap from, okay, 
we accept your likes, your dislikes and stuff like that. However, our family has a structure that, you know, we're not going to encourage you to do some of those things. We have a way that we do things, but we're accepting your likes. So basically we support you even if we don't understand or support everything that you do, right? Well, you can imagine that's not easy for a lot of families to do, especially families that are crossing over in this new generation. There's a lot of pushback, right? There's a lot of like resistance, right? So in this particular in this particular situation with young people, I, hold on a second, I forgot what was your original question because I was going to say something else. That's a great question. <laughs> no, I was going to add, so add something on top of that. In my, oh yeah, I was my, I was talking about how do you what do you do with violent movies? Violent okay, okay, yeah, yeah, okay. So, uh, okay, so my ADD, you know, no, sure. I, I don't got no caffeine in me right now, so I'm, I'm starting to go low. Okay, <laughs> so the whole entire 18 thing. So to help them, so a lot of parents that come in and talk to me, they're like, you know, we, we tell our kids, you can't do this. You can't have sleepovers. You can't boom, 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 boom. And the kid's like, well, why can't I? And then they give them this reason why they can't. And then that's the end of the conversation. I'm like, well, in business or in work, if you tell someone, they go, hey, I want to get a raise. I want to get a, a, a promotion. And you said, you can never get that. Uh, okay, well, where's the incentive for me to work harder? Right? Like, what? I mean, you got to look at this from a real life perspective. If you want your teenager to work with you, then you're going to have to, you know, work with them. So answer to the violence, to the rap, to those types of things. I came from a culture, oddly enough, where I didn't have, didn't know my ethnicity. Right? I remember the first time I got a bootleg from a from a swap meet of an NWA tape before Straight Outta Compton came out. I heard that and I felt like, oh my gosh, like it was relief. Mm. Like that anger you talked about, like someone was pissed off and angry, and I'm like, yeah, I can relate to it. I can relate to being from South Central, but I can relate to the to the vibe and the feeling. So what I've learned from nowadays with kids, we can't protect them and put them in a bubble from seeing violent things. We sure as hell can't protect them from seeing sexual things. That's a huge one, right? Click, click, boom. You can see some crazy, freaky-deaky pornography that you couldn't even imagine seeing when, when I was growing up, right? When I was growing up, you had to, like, spend the night at a friend's house so his dad had a Playboy stash underneath his room and, like, wait till he went to sleep, right? Like, nowadays, it's like click, click, and you can see just some stuff that you shouldn't even be able to see. So what I, what I found out that really works is the conversations with the teenagers about those things, I have them like this, and this is how I model for parents. Teenager comes in, man, I want to listen to this music. I want to, you know, I like these violent video games. I'm like, go tell me, what, why are they important to you? And they just pour out their, like, they're giving their sales pitch that they give their parents. And instead of like their parents, instead of saying, well, don't you know that's bad? And, you know, this is a gateway drug and this happens. I just look at them. I go, so you like this video game because of this, 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 that. Yeah. You like this song because this, 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 that. And I repeat back to them everything that they said just so they know I heard them. And then I say something like this. Huh, I get it. I don't blame you for liking that stuff. I, I like some crazy stuff. I mean, I, I, I can't s- tell you what to like, what not to like, but then comes the transition. After I validate and after I let them know that this is legit, I'm not going to tell you you can't have an interest. You can't have an opinion, right? That's shutting that. Now, how's their creativity and their individual self supposed to grow? So after you say that, I say, however, realistically, this one particular thing, let's pick one out of all the things you said. I could see where you're coming with the music, stuff like that. Like this one drug thing. Do you got addiction in your family, man? Like you got this. Like I could see why you want to mess with that while your friends are doing it. However, I can't suggest that. You already know how that plays out. You don't got to run that race. You know what that works out. So we start to work in like just just viewing it as, hey, this is how you feel. Your Your feelings are reality. However, they're not necessarily the whole picture of reality. Just because you want to do drugs doesn't mean you have to do drugs. 
right? Just because you're angry and, and you're, you have self-loathing, you don't want to live no more, doesn't mean you have to take your life. And to separate those two kids nowadays are getting it. They're like, wow, so it's okay for me to feel rebellious and I don't actually have to always rebel? Right? Like there's, it's okay for me to be pissed off and want to fight the system and fight my parents, but I could actually talk it out with them instead? Sometimes I think, and I'm not a parent, but yeah. just from friends who are parents, some don't know what to say to their kids. Yeah. Or I have some friends that say, well, I'm the parent. I'm the adult. That's why you're going to do this. I old don't need school, to baby. give you an explanation. That's old school. You know? Do it because <laughs> yeah. I said so. Yeah. So where, how do you start if you're a parent looking for different ways? How do you, what's the first thing you can do? Well, let's be, I'll be totally honest with you guys. Some parents, they want a miracle and they want to have it play out the way that they feel comfortable with. But like I said in the research, teenagers, it's their job to test the system. They're not really being rebellious. They're doing their job. They're actually saying, my family needs to evolve, right? And the family's better if they learn to work with new outside influences. In the world we live today, if you still had the same beliefs of your ancestors, everybody would be racist. Not everybody, but like, there'd be a lot more racism going on. You know what I mean? It's like, so these teenagers are giving you the opportunity. So as a parent, a lot of parents will come to me and they're like, you know what? My kid's safety is in, in jeopardy. I'm ready to be humble. I don't care what it takes. And when I give them a suggestion to work with their kid, I call it being a partnership with your kid, like a parenting partnership. They get it and they realize, man, I'm just going to tell my kid that I'm scared. But guess what? It's not your kid's responsibility to make you feel better. Your job, your, your kid's job to put on this earth was not to like make sure that you're emotionally able to handle your own crap in your life. That's not their job. However, how many parents, myself included, if my kid would just do everything that I want him to do, I don't have to stress out so much because I can't handle my relationship. I can't handle my job. No one's respecting me. Unfortunately, too many parents, unknowingly, good, loving parents, will put all their stuff on their kid. And you know what their, care, you know what their kid learns from that? They look at their parents like, damn, my parents can't handle their own stuff. So how can I be real with them and come to them when I'm struggling? Why would you go and tell someone, let's say you're suicidal, why would you go and tell someone that can barely keep their life together that says, I can't do this anymore, and they're flipping out, oh, you're going to tell them that you want to kill yourself, that you want to take your life? Hell no. Not if you actually love that person. You're going to say, I don't want to burden them with that. So a lot of teenagers will withhold the information, and then guess what parents say? They don't talk to me. They don't open up to me. And then parents get more scared because the scariest thing for parents is when your kids stop talking to you. Right? Have you ever heard this in sports? It's like when your coach is yelling at you, you're all good. When your coach stops yelling you, there's a serious problem because then they don't care no more, right? So parents start flipping out. So and in, in to address what you're talking about, I tell parents all the time, if you want a partnership with your kid and you want to work with them, we can do that. But if you just want an outcome that makes you feel better so that you don't have to change anything about yourself or make any changes or any, any ways, whatever, then you're doing the exact same thing your parents did to you that you swore you would never do again. And that's the hypocrisy we all have to face. I love the same hypocrisy knows no bounds. We're just trying to be less of a hypocrite throughout the day. You know, we're trying to not be that big of a hypocrite in our life all the time. So if someone, if you do have a friend that comes up to you and they do open up to you because they can't open up to their parents or whatever the case may be, but you don't know what to do because you've never been in their shoes. You don't know what to say. What can that person do with, you know, without making the person that came to them feel crap? I shouldn't have said anything should have kept my mouth shut well i'm glad you asked that question because this is cause 101 i've been i've been preaching this from the rooftops and hopefully i'll have a lot more opportunities to talk about it so i'm thankful that well i'm thankful this opportunity gave me right now to mention it 
So when I go talk to high schools or, you know, people come ask me to speak for different types of things, um, like, for example, I say the kryptonite to depression is connection. The best suicide prevention is connection. The kryptonite to addiction is connection. And what I mean by that is when someone comes to you and they open up to you, before we even get it, like before we start what to say, you made a mark on that person. You've done something where they spotted you, they marked you and said, they might be a person I could be real with and could be real back with me. So first and foremost, that's legit. Like you are a special person if someone's opening up to you. Because think about it. How many people are going to come up and just say something super deep and vulnerable to just anyone? Most people know you've been hurt enough by saying open things to the wrong person. Like, okay, note to self, I can't trust him, 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 her, her, right? You're like, you're going around and then you're like, you know, maybe Brittany though. I remember she said something. She seems like she's chill, like she can handle it. So then when they come to you, I always tell people the first thing you should acknowledge is be like, damn, like, thank you. Like, that's kind of a big freaking deal. Like, Wow, like I'm just honored that you would even share that with me because think about it. You're telling them what they did was big to you. So automatically, whatever you're going to say is going to be bigger to them, right? It's just like, dude, I thank you. Like I actually matter to someone. Most people don't realize relationships are like mirrors. Most people don't know that you need them just as much as they need you. Right? Have you ever given someone someone giving you a compliment like Brittany? Just you're so amazing. Like you've got your life so together and this and that. You're like, what? You're like, you're like, you know, like, has anyone ever give you a compliment that you're surprised that they thought that much of you? Yes. And you're like, I got my, let me tell you, girlfriend. Okay. You have no, but you're flattered because they actually admire you. So tell that person, thank you. Tell them how big of a deal it is that they'd even talk to you. And second of all, this is what I call questions. Can't, questions are like cancer. Statements are the cure. From the time we're young, our brains have patterned themselves. And condition themselves. When we hear questions in a difficult situation, we instantly see that as a threat, as a criticism, and someone's trying to change us, call us out, and we get defensive. Here's why. Say you're 10 years old, you walk by, I don't know if you got a little brother, but imagine you got a little brother, you walk by the living room, boom, you push your little brother, your mom sees it, and she goes, Brittany, what the hell did you just push your little brother for? She's seen it a hundred times. She knows he bothers. She knows all the answers to every question she's asking. But she says, why did you push your little brother? Then you hear things like, how come you didn't clean your room? How come you did this? How many times do I have to tell you? What's wrong with you? Question, 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 question. Whenever you're in trouble, whenever there's a touchy situation, our brains fix pat make patterns to, to figure out how to protect ourselves. So what our brain does is it says, oh, every time you hear a question, get ready for defense get ready to hear something of criticism, judgment, or self-doubt. Oddly enough, the opposite is true for statements. Brittany, thank you for helping your brother with his homework. Brittany, you're beautiful. Brittany, I'm so proud of you. Brittany, you you did this, you did that. When we get props and when someone gives us compliments, it usually comes in the form of a statement. And in fact, people don't say like, I'm thinking about loving you. Right? It's not that kind of a statement. It's like, I love you. I got your back. You are amazing. So our brain at a very early age, here's a question, goes, and here's a statement. It like perks up like, what, am I going to get a compliment? Somebody give me some good information. Hey, don't forget to clean your room. Sounds better than why didn't you clean your room? Right? So to get back to that question, when someone comes and talks to you and they're opening up and being vulnerable, I do this with, this is my biggest suicide prevention when someone's suicidal 
right? In suicide and a lot of counseling, talk about how to ask the right questions. I say, oh, 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 you better not ask a question to someone that you don't have a connection with. Because think about it. If a, if a person comes up to you and they say, Sasha, if they say, hey, and this person is not a friend. It's a person that's a critic of yours. And they go, hey, man, uh, how you doing today, bro? And you had a horrible day. And you look at them, you're going to say, oh, it's all good. I'm fine. There ain't no way in hell you're going to open up and tell that person nothing. No way. But if one of your close friends catches you kind of looking off and they know you're something's not right with you and they can tell and they go, Sash, what's up, man? You're like, oh, I'm good, man. I'm fine. They're like, uh, are you sure, man? And like, yeah, I like, nah, man, what's going on? What's going on? If it's a close friend, they can ask you all the questions they want. And eventually like, dude, oh, man. And then you, it's almost like, you know, it's okay. You can open up and talk. But most people, if you're not in a good relationship with someone or they're in a tough time, you need to start out with a statement. So in that question, someone comes up to you, Brittany, and someone says, hey, I'm struggling, I'm depressed, I'm this and that, I'm going through a hard time, I don't know what to do. You thank them for opening up to you, and then you just say, hey, to be totally honest with you, I've never been through something like that, but here's what I do know. Whatever you're going through, I've seen you go through so many things, I know you're going to get through it. And I also know I can help you get through it. So the good thing about it is I don't know, I've never been through that, but I know some people have. Who do we need to call? Quit tripping. Exactly. Right. <laughs> but you know what I'm saying? Like you quickly go into statement because statement mode is like get sh- stuff done mode. Yeah. Right. I don't know if you can curse on the podcast, but like it's get stuff done mode. Right. Statement mode's not like, well, let's think about maybe doing something like, no, I have your back. What do you need? You know what I mean? Like once you make those statements and they feel comfortable, it's like an icebreaker. Then you can ask the questions. Okay. I want to help you, but you got to give me more information. Like what happened? Ask all the questions you want, but you got to start with statements because if you don't start with statements, you may sound like the person's mom. How many times have people, so many times people will come to me, teenagers especially, like, I come home from school. My parents says, how was your day? I'm like, fine. What's wrong? Nothing. How come you don't want to talk? I don't know. Because. And, and then they go off in the room. The parents pissed. The parents like, man, I'm going to take back that Xbox because I just got them. I can't believe this. Like, the parents all pissed off. Then I tell parents, flip it around. Now the kid comes home. They see the kids say, hey. I don't know how your day was. And the parents like thinking something's wrong. I don't know how your day was. I kind of got a feeling you had a rough day. If you want to talk about it, I'll be in the kitchen doing my thing. You don't have to talk about it. If you do, I'm willing to listen. Mic drop, walk away. The best thing that you can do to not mess up someone's own like processing and someone working through something difficult is don't try to b- pull it out of them. You just say, hey, I got your back. I'm here for you. Mic drop, walk away. You can circle back around and, and you know say something later on, but nine times out of ten, Parents will say within the first couple times of doing this, their kid will say, hey, man, you know, like, I was just so pissed off at Susie today or John said this. And the parents like doing the dishes. And I always use this example. There's one mom. She's doing the dishes. Her biggest complaint, her son doesn't talk to her, doesn't have a relationship. And she was like the needy, desperate mom. Like, can I make you some apple pie? Can you do this? little?" Like, she was so smothering over the kid. I'm like, dude. No one wants to be around you when you're like that. <laughs> and she's like, I know. I'm like, so the desperate mom, right? And so I said, I go, here's what you knew. I gave her all these statements. She said the statements. She did it two days in a row. One day, she's sitting there doing the dishes. The kid comes in and just starts randomly talking to her. And she was like, I was sitting there doing the dishes. And like he was talking. And every part of my body wanted to say, thank you so much for talking to me. I'm like, what would you do? She's like, I just shut up. I didn't say anything. I'm like, yes. Because <laughs> that's a win. Like, if you, sometimes you yeah. can mess up something by talking. Shut up. Make your statement and walk away. So when people in a difficult situation, your friends, think about the friends that have helped you the most. You're going through a hard time. They don't give you advice. They go, come here. Come here. Shut up. Come here. <laughs> Just give you a hug. I love you. It's, you don't need that guy. You don't need that person. It's all That job sucked anyways. And they just tell you the things that make you laugh and feel better. 
So I know that was a big, long one, but that is so huge to put things in statements, to let people know. Put it this way. You got a thousand questions in your head why you can't figure it out. What, you need someone to ask you one more question to tip you over? We don't need one more question. Why does my wife hate me? Why can't get a job that pays me enough? Why do my kids hate me? How come you haven't cleaned this? How come you haven't? Nobody wants another question. Just tell them, I don't know why your wife hates you, but I'll tell you what, she's still your wife. Unless she give you the divorce papers, you can do something about it. Sorry. (laughs) I told you, I got bad ADD, so I'm like, I'm like all over in different subjects. So hopefully that made sense. No, it made complete sense. And I'm laughing because I'm thinking in my head, and it's kind of not the same thing, but when I go to sleep, I always have a million questions going on in my head, and I can't sleep. Yes. So I'm like, if somebody does ask me, the, you know, another question at the wrong time, I'm gonna be like, if you ask me one more damn question, I'm gonna kick your ass. I'm gonna do something. You probably got that yeah. from your mom too. <laughs> Think about it. How many times when someone asks you a question and it's painful? Like this one teenager, I told him about this whole thing. He's like, oh my gosh, you just explained what the problem is. I go, what do you mean? He's like, last night my mom was like, and I forget what the food was. She was like. Hey, do you want pizza or hamburgers? She's like, I don't know. <laughs> Those are my two favorite things. And my mom was like, fine, you get nothing. And then like she's like, then I'm hungry. I don't have and I came back and tried to apologize. She's like, no. He's like, you really didn't cook me anything? No, you're rude to me. He's like, and I was like, I don't know why I got mad. He's like, but now I know. He's like, I'm just tired of hearing questions. And one more question, I just can't take it. Even if it's a good question. You just explode. You just explode, you snap. I know with my wife, I go with this all the time. She's like, why'd you I'm like, babe. Babe, I can't take one more question. And then she's like, well, just one more. I'm like, what? <laughs> and she doesn't even mean harm by it, but I'm just, I'm just, just too much questions going inside of my head, you know? Do you ever get a pass or do you ever give her a pass? Because you guys are both so knowledgeable, you know, and you know all these things. Are you like, it's okay. It just don't ask me one more question because if you ask me one more question, babe. <laughs> you know, it's kind of funny. And she's been giving me a hard time about this lately. So we've been married again, going on 11 years now for the first nine years. She got a green light to say she broke every communication rule and in couples. But because I'm the therapist, she's like, well, you're the therapist. Is that how you're supposed to respond? <laughs> and so, like, She was like, always had me on this high standard and I would show up. I'd be like, all right, babe, you're right. My bad. Blah, blah, blah. The last year and a half, like she's like the roles reverse. Like now she's actually communicating way better and I'm communicating worse, which is actually a normal thing that happens. Right. It's. I won't get it. It's just, you know, it's, 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 it's a is weird. Is it because you're a guy and guys are just weird? No, it's a weird, it's an actual cycle thing. So what happens is when, when one thing gets better, something goes out of place. It's a balancing thing, right? So um, I, I don't want to geek out because I'll go off on a tangent on that stuff too. But basically it's, it's a cycle that happens even all of organisms and biology and stuff like that where, for example, like you hold like a plant's growing up, right? And it wants to grow towards the sun or like a, a, a vine. And you want to tie it around your your house to kind of make it more decorative, like to make it look cool. Well, as soon as you untie it, it goes straight back. Okay, human beings, our family cycle is the reason why people have a hard time uh, falling through with diet, exercise, you know, breaking any sort of bad habits in life is because there's a self correcting mechanism that always wants to go back to its original structure. Right. So in order to break that, we have to make there's a lot of diligence and we have to consciously try to overcompensate for that and create a new pattern, which is why the whole statement things you ask anyone. OK, the only thing you have to do to ask questions is just do what comes natural. It, everyone naturally asks questions. But could you imagine if like a first responder, like a firefighter showed up to an accident? There's blood. There's people all over the place. And he walked up and said, what the hell were you driving that fast for? 
Like, what, like, like uh, you'd be like, wait, what? Like, I, I'm like, can you give me CPR? Right? Like, there's no way. Like, in a real crisis situation, you want to show up and be like, hey, I'm gonna help you. It's gonna be okay. I got your back. We're gonna do this. You don't show up throwing questions at people, right? Like, in in crisis situations, like crisis negotiators, they show, hey, you're surrounded. Come out with your hands up. They don't go, hey, uh, how much money do you want? Like that's not their first question, right? <laughs> so I know I'm using lots of analogies, but hopefully just to illustrate the same point. This is such a simple, basic thing, but it's overlooked by so many people. But at the same time, it makes sense. No one wants to be questioned all the time. When do you, is it, when is it, is it ever too early to start molding that into people? Um, kids, young adults, anything like that to rephrase, rephrase the whole stop asking questions move to statements. No, I, I'm, I'm doing it with my kids right now. So my daughter just turned seven. I got a son that's about to turn three. And it's it's so funny because I actually will ask questions, pull myself back and I say, you know what, babe? Here's what I meant to say. I need you to go upstairs and clean your room. Instead of me saying, why haven't you cleaned your room? Why haven't you eaten your dinner? Why haven't you done that? I'm like, I don't even like it when people talk to me like that. But then again, at myself, I'm like, all right, I got to put myself in check. Like, I, I just have to do it. If I don't do it, I'm the biggest hypocrite in the world because I teach it, right? But it's still hard for me to remember to do it. So to answer you that question, man, you can start as soon as they can talk and you know, as soon as you can communicate with them, because put it this way, it's really for you, right? You're just modeling it for them. If you start doing that for them, what do you think they're going to do for you? They're going to do the same thing for you when you make a mistake because you get a parent, your teenagers, they start picking out your mistakes real quick. Oh, yeah, Mom? Well, how about when you were 16 and the story I heard you telling Aunt, you weren't supposed to hear that. Yeah, well, I heard it. I know what you did. <laughs> Somebody's always watching and listening. The kids oh, yeah. are. Do you ever go back to the University of Utah and speak to the athletes or just the students there? You know, not yet. You know, I'd, I'd be open to it. Uh, what I've done is individually uh, throughout the past few years, I've helped individual football players just kind of on the down low, not as actually their counselor um, just kind of like they know what I do and like through a friend of a friend, they'll hit me up. They'll shoot me a couple texts. I'll say, hey, try this out. Give a suggestion. Right. Because, you know, they, they got a, a unique system over there with like sports psychology and stuff like that. But with quit tripping and the things we're working on right now, I, I could see that in the near future. In fact, I'm very proud of something right now I'm working on. I was asked to be the director of the what's called the I Love You Man campaign for the Ron McBride Foundation. So uh, Ron McBride, he started his own foundation, and he's all about youth. He's all about helping out kids. And so the I Love You Man campaign comes from, if anyone knew Ron McBride, he'd always say, I love you, man. Like, he's a tough, burly guy, but he wasn't scared to say, I love you. And that was so huge for us young men to see an older father figure. Like you said earlier, Sasha's so just like, man, to hear an older guy tell you, I love you, you're like, it's like, it like, uh, does not compute. What does that mean? Like, <laughs> must you, be bad. Yeah, it must be bad. And then it makes you feel really weird, but then you walk away feeling really good and like you just want to follow the guy, right? You want to follow the guy in the fire. Well, my whole entire thing that I talked about earlier when I was playing football with you and I had a suicide attempt, it was after a couple concussions, break up my girlfriend, a whole lot of bad stuff happened. He showed up to my hospital um, four o'clock in the morning, didn't know what happened, didn't know that my stomach just got pumped. They didn't tell him, but they told him I was in the hospital. He talked to me for a moment. I was still kind of contemplating if I wanted to live or not. And then all of a sudden, well, Ron McBride walks in the room, and I just saw him, and my heart dropped. He talked to me for a few minutes, talked some trash to me. What the hell are you doing, Causeway? Like, talk trash. But then he was like, I love you, man. I'm like, why did you come here at 4 o'clock in the morning from your house that's far away? He's like, because I love you, man. And he hugged me, walked away. I said, hell no, my, I can't kill myself. There's no way. He, he gave a damn. I mean, for the head of the football team to come down, 
Nobody does that. I was done playing then. I was already off in my own, you know, issues with drugs and type of issues. I was already hurt. Like I wasn't a starter anymore. And so at that particular moment, well, I had kept that secret for years until I ran into him in lunch a couple of years ago. I told him that was a suicide attempt. He's like, what? He had no idea what it was. He just showed up. And so then last year at the Legends Golf Tournament, uh, Coach, I was very honored. I got the very first annual between Coach Lave- Lavelle Edwards and Ron McBride. I got the very first I Love You Man Award. And I got the award. Me and Coach McBride got it. Because what we're focusing on the I Love You Man campaign is having people that are reaching out and helping, being vulnerable. Because it's being it's vulnerable to reach out and say I love you to, to give someone some sort of support. When a coach, when a public figure or someone reaches out to someone else and helps them in a difficult situation, you can be nominated in your local high school, in your junior high, to win the I Love You Man Award campaign. So I was the first recipient of that. I'm very honored and proud of that. And now they've asked me to be the director of it. And so that's what we're doing right now. Ron McBride's uh, golf tournament, Legends Golf Tournament, um, uh, June 16th, um, is going to be held down at Talons Golf Court. And we're going to give a token to former players. And we're going to challenge them. If you take this token, that means you're going to go to local schools in your area. You're going to talk to coaches, talk to people, and say, we want to give the I Love You Man Award Here's the basic rules. Someone's got to help another person out. They got to show a sign of vulnerability. Like you can't be a tough macho woman or man. It's not for just guys, by the way. It's for men and women. You can't be a tough macho person saying, hey, I'm proud of what you did. No, we want to hear the stories. We want to know what you did. Nominate people in your community. And at the end of the year, the Ron McBride Foundation is going to give you an award, give you some sort of gift card, you know, some sort of like prize for it. And just we want to pass on that spirit of being vulnerable is valuable. Like that's how we get through life. We can't do it alone. This sounds like the better version of like a big brother. Not to say that they're bad, but it's just. Just this, deeper. Yeah. yeah. No, well, that's actually the intention. The The second evolution that we haven't rolled out yet is going to be the mentoring program for former uh, college football players, former high school football players, and potentially pros if they want to get involved. This is the idea. And we haven't, it's not approved, but this is kind of the thought that this could turn into former people mentoring the people that are going through it because a lot of college athletes they get them playing college sports they lost their identity they don't know who they are high school football players are you know at the local bars i remember when i scored four touchdowns uncle rico style right <laughs> oh, Bundy. Yeah. oh god yeah, i have Bundy, a friend right? like that oh, Bundy, yeah. oh we all got plenty of friends like that but think about it those guys they actually could come back work with some of the younger kids they're still relevant and they just have to go through my training that, that I've kind of been working on for a long time. It's just it's just, just a mentor training. It's, it's kind of like the big brother, but you're doing it in a more way of like, I'm actually going to be more vulnerable. I'm going to share the old school way of being vulnerable is like, hey, let me tell you about how much drugs and alcohol I used to drink and don't do drugs and alcohol. You're like, Uncle <laughs> Bill, that was not a pep talk. That was like that was you, encouragement. Yeah, that was you bragging about how great you could drink, and then now I'm not supposed to drink. Now I want to do it even more, right? No, just so I can show you I can outdrink you. Or the old school is like, I have been through rougher stuff than you. And you're like, well, how does that make me feel better? To You say you're tougher than me, right? That's not encouraged. That's not being vulnerable. So now what we're showing is like, hey, I struggle with stuff. So I got up to receive this award. I got up in front of. Jerry Sloan. I got up in front of BYU and University of Utah football legends. I said, I wish I would get up in front of you guys and talk about how my pro NFL career was, but instead I'm getting up in front of you and tell you how this man saved my life when I attempted suicide. And part of me was embarrassed to be up in front of all these other alpha males, and the other part of me was like proud that I was up in front of them saying, you guys could do more. Every one of them have gone through something in their life. Well, why aren't you sharing that with a young person in your life? Don't be too pr- brave and too proud to not be real. And so when I, 
the good thing about when I was done, a bunch of people came up to me. I was like, wow, man, like they started sharing me stuff their kids went through and like, thank you for doing it. I didn't know how that was going to go over with a bunch of tough guys that just got in playing golfing and comparing checkbooks, you know, because they're all donating money and stuff. I was very thankful that a lot of people opened up and shared stuff. So we're, we're really excited about that Loving Man campaign. It's just like what we were talking about earlier. It's outside the norm and people aren't used to it. So then I think that's why a lot of people are scared. That's why they didn't go up and say, hey, I'm dealing with this, this, and this. And that's why you only see pictures on, like, a lot of athletes' Instagrams where it's the money and the house yeah. and the cars and the girls and the dudes, whatever. But they're not opening up and being vulnerable to let you know that other side. Well, Sasha and I were talking about before, right, you know, with ESPN and stuff like that. Like, they're big things that, you know, that they're getting a lot of traction, a lot of views on. 30 for 30s, the E60s, like, that's behind the like. scenes. People want to know the stories. It's like, okay, he scored three touchdowns. That was great. But wait, you got a DUI. You got an accident. You got injured, and you got through all this trouble, and then it comes to find out that you had other personal issues going on, and now you came back from that? As Americans, and I think in our society, we have this weird twist. It's called Shade and Freud where we like to see other people go through hurt and pain. But thankfully, the only thing I believe we like more is we like the comeback. The comeback story. We love the comeback story. We love that, like that person went. And what hero story comes from privilege? You know, hero stories are always some sort of struggle or some, or even if they came from privilege, they had to go through something tough. And so like, you know, it, it's just, it's just really cool to think, to try to do things outside the box because I think that's what's needed. Musicians, athletes, in the old days, a lot of musicians, athletes like, well, I'm not a role model. Well, that's the thing is you don't have to be a role model, but if you're real, people relate to your struggle, and hopefully they don't have to go through all that crazy crap you went through. Hopefully they can learn from your bad mistakes or experiences. So in the starting of wrapping up here, how do you keep your humility? My humility? Yeah. Well, all joking aside, uh, my wife, uh, <laughs> she's a pit bull, man. Mm. My, my, my wife... Uh, Oddly enough, she's she's the perfect woman for me, and she always reminds me. She, you know, I'm great for you. You know, I'm great for you because like <laughs> she's such the she's the consummate instigator. Like she is such a good trash talker, but I love it. Yeah. Like if she was a pushover, I would I would just like bend the rules throughout the years. I wouldn't I wouldn't. There's no way I'd be the man that I am because my wife she toes it. Like she she she's one of those people. If she says she's gonna do it, she backs it up. I always struggle with commitment. I was always that guy that was more talk than follow through. My wife, she's cut from that, like, it's black or it's white. If you say you're going to do it, you're going to do it. And so for me, that keeps me humble. But the other huge thing that keeps me humble, man, when you're working with hundreds of kids, teenagers, that are struggling in such real, like, real time, not like 10 years ago I went through this. No, like. They have no food. They, they have no food. They're, they're suicidal. Their mom just died of cancer. They're. Being molested all on and oh, on and I, on. I've talked yeah. to hundreds of kids throughout the years, and I can honestly say it's hundreds because I specialize a lot, sexual molestation, rape. And this person, when you watch someone say it for the very first time out loud, it's like, boo, boo, boo. I mean, it pierces your soul. And then for me to get up and to leave that room and think something about myself that is narcissistic or egotistical would be absurd. Like, I can't even, like, think about myself in that, like, any of the stuff of, like, my animation, that's just me. Like, I'm just, I'm just, I just talk and I get crazy. But, like, I can't even think about myself, but anything is like, man, like, if I'm helping this person to get to the place they want to be, I got front row seats. I literally feel like what keeps me humble, too, is I feel like I got front row seats to the best show on earth, but it's not being in the newspaper. No one's going to hear about it because that's just between you and that person. And I'm like, man. 
Like I, I got to see people change in real time. And I think if more people got to see people actually evolve and change, it'd be easier to believe in people changing. How do you take care of these people and help these people and these kids, these children, young adults, and then help yourself? You know, sometimes it's easier than others. Sometimes I feel like, oh, I got it figured out. And then other times I'll have like, like last May, you know, I had a bunch of suicide attempts from some clients. Uh, I say clients, I don't even like to say it, from some young people that I care about and help. One young man, he was successful. And um, at those times, I'm not going to lie, man, I, I'm like, I want to quit. I can't quit, but I want to quit. I dream about doing something different. I'm like, why do I got to do this stuff? And and I don't get resentful and angry, but it just hurts. But I think that's normal, right? Like, you know, like I think, you know, even if you love something, when it gets hard, you know, you're like, man, this sucks. But to keep the balance, it's it's definitely like my family, right? I got great family, great support. Um, and I don't know if this sounds like you know, surface, but I, I'm a surfer from the beach in California. And this past year, I was fortunate enough to go back a lot of times to surf. I got to go to Hawaii. I got to go to you know, visit my hometown in California. And unfortunately the waves aren't always that good when I go there, but the food, seeing friends and just getting the ocean and I don't know, you know, what you guys relationship with the ocean. But for I me, for me growing up, right. Oh, well, yeah. We're but for me growing up. Oh yeah. You too. Venture. I'm talking to some coastal people. You get it. I don't got it. I'm speaking to the choir, but for me going to the ocean, I like being up at the beach before the sun comes up, watching the sunrise and getting ready to go out and surf to me. If I do that a handful of times throughout the year, that that's the that's the part. And also here, you know, I try to, you know, not try to, but I exercise about four times a week. I, you know, train a lot of uh, Brazilian jiu-jitsu, not as much lately because I've been hurt. But so I just try to stay active, you know. So where can people go and find more information if they want to get in contact with you? Yeah, so you, first of all, you can visit our website. It's quittrippin.org, Q-U-I-T-T-R-I-P-N.org. Um, and on the homepage, uh, it has like an active live of all our recent uh, radio shows. Um, and we do a podcast after the radio show. We do another podcast called The Confession Session every now and then. And uh, so they can get that information there. On Instagram, Facebook, social, uh, all social media, we're same thing, Q-U-I-T-T-R-I-P-N. Our radio show is uh, pretty much, unless there's a big sporting event, every Wednesday night on ESPN 700 from 7 to 9. And uh, we got social events coming up, so just follow us on social media and you'll be able to see what we're up to. All right, Sasha, what about you? Where can people find you? Bloom underscore Sasha on Instagram, Mr. underscore Bloom on Twitter. All right, find me on Twitter at bjohnsonabc4. And at the end of the day, just quit tripping. (laughs) That's right. Today... I consider myself the luckiest man on the face of the earth. Been given a bad break, but I've got an awful lot to live for. Thank you.